Well, familia, we are, are doing things a little bit differently these days. Last week we did this and we did it again with Melissa where we're, we're actually uh, seeking to elevate the place that the word of the Lord has in our gatherings. And that's why we're reading the passage before we step into the sermon uh, because we want to communicate that my words and the ways that I'm talking, I am praying that I'm faithful, but ultimately what will change you are not my words, but his words. Amen? The other thing I want to mention before we dive in is that this is, uh, I mentioned it to a couple of you, uh, this morning is my fourth sermon in 48 hours. I'm standing here by the grace of God and by his caffeinated provision. Um, but this weekend, and, and part of it is that I, not just that you'll pray for me that I don't collapse in the middle of the sermon, but that, that you might celebrate me with what the Lord is doing. Not just how uh, he's shaping his church to be generous, but what he's doing even in among our students. Because this weekend I got a chance to be with the, the uh, larger Wheaton Church, ex- uh, extended family of our Wheaton Bible Church uh, family of the students at fall camp. And I got to preach on a series about God's presence on Emmanuel. And, and I want to tell you that it was beautiful to watch the word of God. Not me being super clever and cool and relevant because you know I'm not that. But the word of God actually impacting and engaging and, and transforming lives. To see them worshiping and singing and praying together and, and wanting to engage with what the Lord is doing in their lives. They, they played wild games and pranks and all those things. But they also were, were diving into what God had for them and what it means that God is actually with us. Why that even matters. And so I just wanted to celebrate that this morning before we jumped in because I saw the word of God in action within that community. And so this morning, my hope, my prayer, and my firm belief is that God's word will be in action in and among us as we dive into the book of Ruth. The sermon series we're starting this morning is the first in a four-part series that we've entitled The Story of a Loving Life. Because in the pages of this story, we encounter an incredible love. A a, a love that pushes the boundaries of country and of culture, of religion and of family. Love that that presses into the people that God calls his own from all over the world. But when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about a love story, but it's not the kind of love story you see on the Hallmark Channel or the hundreds of billions of rom-coms that Netflix keeps putting out. When I call this a love story, this is a love story that is based on faithful love, loyal love, lo- love that, that stays and clings and holds on and does what is right. Love that is more than just a relationship between a man and a woman, but between human and human, image bearers of God, one for another, the people of God, and God for those image bearers, and those image bearers for God. This is a love story, a love that characterizes all these key relationships in this book, Because it is a a story that fills out a complete definition of real love for the people of God. Faithful love that's demonstrated right from the beginning in this first chapter. Faithful love that holds on despite disaster. And if there's one thing that you're going to be writing throughout this sermon, this is the one phrase that I want to focus on this entire time. That faithful love holds on despite disaster. Faithful love is, is proved when disaster hits, when that, that faithfulness is actually tested, when the opportunity for faithlessness arises. When, when the rubber hits the road and you got to put your money where your mouth is, what do you do when it feels like life punches you in the mouth and doesn't stop punching? What do you do when the brokenness of the world goes from some, some abstract theological idea to the very real threat of death and loss and pain? What happens in your head, in your heart, in your family when suffering hits? 
When no matter how hard you try, you can't get pregnant. When you, you pray for your loved one, your, your sick loved one, and, and, and they, they die anyways. What happens to your faith when your options start to run out and it, and it feels like as you're trying to take care of your aging parents, it just keeps cracking your confidence and your courage? What happens when grief meets bitterness and, and faith and love feel like some distant echoes of another life? This morning, we step into a story that gives a, a, a complicated and long answer to all of those questions. A story that does not shy away from describing the complexities of life in a broken world. The reality of being part of the people of God and still experiencing difficulty and suffering. The story of Ruth is a story that speaks indirectly about God's work in the world. And when I say that, I mean that, that rather than talking about it outright, the story of Ruth shows God's work in the world. This story is much more show than tell. And what it shows us is a faithful love that holds on despite disaster. And it does that by painting three pictures for us. And so here are the three pictures that are going to guide our time in this chapter this morning. The first picture that, that, that I think the story paints for us is the picture of a story of a family of faith. And it's mainly painted in the first five verses of our chapter. But it moves from those five verses into the, the rest of the story. And the second picture that the story paints for us is, is of Naomi, where we actually see the wrestle of, of faith in bitterness. In order to experience the whole picture that this chapter paints, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go through the whole story looking at Naomi, and then we're going to go right back and go through the whole story and look at Ruth. I promise we won't be here for four hours. The family of faith, a picture of Naomi, and then our third picture will be a picture of Ruth, where we see love in the middle of grief. Three pictures, three perspectives, three opportunities to get into the story and for this story to get into us, to show us how faithful love holds on despite disaster. All right, first picture. The first picture that this story paints is actually a really dark one. It's a picture of God's family of faith, of, of a particular family within that family of faith, of, of faith being exercised in extreme disaster. There's a book uh, called The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home by, uh, by a guy named Dr. Russell Moore. And he, he describes this, uh, this paradox of a storm. And he says it's a, a storm holds both blessing and curse, it, it, provision and danger, rain and destruction. And he writes, family is like that, the source of life-giving blessing, but also of excruciating terror, often all at the same time. And in Ruth 1.1, we encounter a family that's living the dual nature of that storm. The text opens up like this, verse 1. In the, de the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Immediately the story is painted with the color scheme of dark tones. Saying the day when the judges ruled is the equivalent of the dark ages for the people of God. It sets the stage for Ruth with, with violence and danger and evil. Judges 17.6 describes this moment in Israel's history with these chilling words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The ESV translates like that final phrase with these words. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The reason that phrase is so chilling is because the people of God actually had a king. God. They just didn't have a human king. In these dark days, they lived as if they had no king at all. 
As if God was not the king who had saved them from the slavery of Egypt, who had brought them into the land that he had promised them. In the days when judges ruled, God's people lived like they had no king, and they received the punishment that God promised them when they disobeyed. Back in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy over and over again, when you disobey, here's what will happen. If they didn't follow his ways... Punishment would come in the form of of a conquering country or a debilitating drought or a famine in the land. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The story opens up on a time period where everyone was going their own way and it was going very, very badly. When God was visiting his people in judgment, when the family of faith was not obeying the God that they said they believed in. The people he had saved, he was judging them for their sin. And in that visit of God, a family within the family of faith takes a trip. A man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. We have our time frame, and now we have a starting point. Bethlehem, a famous town for those of us who know the story, right? right? The, 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 the town that is known for saviors and kings, where King David was born, the man after God's own heart, where, where Jesus, the embodiment of God's heart for sinners, came in desperate circumstances. Centuries before, desperate circumstances marked this city again. Bethlehem, a city whose name means house of bread, is empty of bread. And God in his sovereignty, because God is, is over all things, sends this man and his family from home to cross into the border of enemy territory. We don't know why he went. Is this an act of faith, an act of faithlessness? There are multiple people in Scripture, Abraham being one of them, that left the promised land for a famine, and God in his sovereignty did something. So we read this story, and this man goes into what we call enemy territory. Why do I say that? Because he's going to the land of Moab. The way the story goes, the Moabites are our cousins of Israel. But they're not just cousins. The story actually starts with the fact that they are children of incest between Abraham's nephew Lot and his daughters as they escape Sodom and Gomorrah. The origins of Moab are as horrific as their treatment of Israel as well as Israel's treatment of them. This isn't a good situation. A famine infects the land of promise and this man and his family leave the promise to go to enemy territory. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. You see, the story is not done setting the scene for us in this first picture. Because now we get names. The man's name, Elimelech, is a name that means God is king. A reflection of God's sovereignty even in a situation as disastrous as a famine. His wife's name, Naomi, means pleasant, and his son's names, Malon and Kilion, means sick and frail. In other words, God is king, is taking pleasant from the house of bread, which is now empty of bread, to enemy territory with their two children, sick and frail. What could go wrong? As if a natural disaster is not enough, the family encounters a family disaster in the land of Moab. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. The patriarch dies. The one who in this culture provided for the family, secured the family, is now lying in a grave in the fields of their enemies. 
And if you're slow when you're reading the story, you're like, okay, but all is not lost. She's left with her two sons. The sons can, can carry the family name. They'll provide safety, security for their family, except these two sons married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Not a sin, but certainly not wise, since these women serve other gods. And God was explicit about his people not marrying people of other gods and opening themselves up to the temptation of following after false gods. But, but not a sin, and the text continues, after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Times are hard when the judges ruled. Times get harder when famine hits. Times in Moab, though full of food, are empty of God's promises. The family of the family of faith is now emptied of a father of two sons and also of three husbands. Naomi has gone from a bad situation to an impossible situation. What does faithful love look like when life won't stop kicking you when you're down? How does love stay faithful to God when it feels like suffering is much more like, like compound interest rather than one cash payment? How do you still believe when the unbelievable happens? It doesn't look like smiling faces and pretending like everything's okay. It doesn't look like absolute despair either. Faithful love is the kind of love that God's people are characterized by and must become practiced in. It's love that must hold on despite disaster. Love that feels what it feels, feels it to the core of our souls, all the way into our bones. That cries and gasps for words and grieves the unthinkable and yet all that time holds on to hope. Holds on to the God who, whose heart kind of looks foggy to us when his hand feels angry towards us. Love that believes in the worst moments, what it learned in the best moments. That God is good. That God is faithful. That God will never sin against you. There's a book by a, a Jackie Hill Perry that talks about this in the tagline. And her book is called Holier Than Now. And, and her tagline writes this. It says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against you. If he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being that there is? Faithful love holds on to a holy and a good God despite disaster and suffering because it remembers what it has believed. And no amount of suffering will break that. Suffering might shake that. It might be really hard to stay standing. You might fall to your knees. But you hold on to hope because of the one you're holding on to. Or better yet, the one who's holding on to you. Because we do not grieve as those who have no hope. The first picture that this story paints is of a family of faith hit by disaster after disaster after disaster. They're, they're living in a broken society with empty cupboards, transitioning to a new life as a refugee, and then hit by the incredible loss of loved ones. And the second picture is the picture of a woman who stands in the aftermath of these disasters who is at ground zero, a widow at ground zero of the destruction of her family. Naomi, pleasant, communicating what faith looks like despite bitterness. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi. The book of Ruth could just as easily be called the book of Naomi. She's just as important as central to this book. In fact, these names are two sides of the same relationship. A relationship that is marked by love and faithfulness in the middle of devastation. Naomi 
is a woman of incredible strength, experiencing incredible pain and in need of incredible redemption. It's no wonder her faith battles bitterness so strongly. The text tells us that Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. And after his death, her two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And together, this, this devastated but not destroyed family live in Moab for 10 years, a decade, trying to figure out how to live without the patriarch of their family, with, with new uh, sons that, that, that should have been trained up in this by their father. 10 years or sick and frail are with their wives. And, and the story, one of the things that's conspicuously absent in this story is the name of any other children. Ten years where scholars believe Orpah and Ruth are actually struggling to have kids. Ten years of pain upon pain, of, of, of infertility and, and, and insecurity. And both Malon and Kilion also died. The text says Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The pain of empty wombs is matched only by the pain of a near-empty home. The grief that Naomi endures in this moment, that her faith has to endure in this moment, is tempting her faith to sour into bitterness. Have you ever asked the question, where is God? Like, where is God when suffering goes from bad to worse? When you wish, you could just check the box on the list that says, all right, I have, I have suffered enough, done, done my duty, we can move on, God. When you wish you could return to sender, the grief, the pain, the suffering. In the book of Ruth, that question stands starkly against the background of darkness that stains these pages. Where is God? And the Bible answers by showing you his hand even when you don't hear his voice. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living. She set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, uh, we kept this in here. Look at where it says the Lord right at the top. Do you think it's weird that it's all caps? We talked about this before. The reason that the text actually has Lord in all caps is not because they were just really spiritual and wanted to make sure you understood that we're talking about God. It's because that word actually translates the, the covenant name, the personal name, the intimate name of God, Yahweh. God himself has provided bread for his people. God himself has shown mercy for his people in relationship. He's responded to the cries of his people. He has, has uh, over and over again, the book of Judges talks about these cycles where the people of God forsake God and do their own thing. And then God brings punishment and judgment. And the people of God really regret what they've done. And they start to cry out to the Lord. They repent of what they're doing. And God shows mercy. He sends a judge and he ends their punishment. In this moment, God provided and Naomi heard and she in faith returns home. The word there in verse 6, return, is a word that shows up no less than 12 times in this chapter. It translates phrases like turn, return, go back, take them back. All of these phrases translating the same word for return. And it's a word that paints a dark picture with the bright tones of repentance, of turning back, of faithfulness in the midst of pain. Naomi hears of God's provision and heads home. Two new Moabite daughters-in-law in tow. She left with a husband and two sons, and she returns husbandless, sonless, but filled with daughters. And yet, in this place, in this time, her future, their future looks bleak. 
three women, women, one that's way past childbearing age, so she can't provide someone that, a, a son that would necessarily, I guess, in the culture, provide for this family. Two way outside of the people of God women who have little to no hope of protection or provision or acceptance. Legally, in this culture, they have no rights, especially in a time where, where the judges ruled and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So Naomi does something incredibly selfless and loving. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord, Yahweh, show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we, we will go back with you to your people. In an act of selfless love, Naomi doesn't really think about her situation. What she's thinking about is her daughters-in-law. She is releasing them from any responsibility to her. She is proclaiming a blessing on them, not from the gods in general, but from the one true God, Yahweh, that he would show kindness to these women. Kindness that is actually matched by the kindness that they've shown her family. But this blessing is not just of kindness, it's also of rest. She asked the Lord to give them rest, security, provision, Yes, wrapped up in, in the home of another husband, but don't be mistaken, it's still the Lord that's providing that security and that rest, not just a man. Naomi proclaims a blessing over these foreign, used-to-be enemies of God, now integrated within the family of God somehow through marriage. She, she blesses them like her father Abraham was promised his family would bless the nations. And something remarkable happens. They kiss goodbye. They cry together, and these daughters-in-law, they, they refuse to leave their mother-in-law. These two women willingly choose a li the life that they know is waiting for them if they go with Naomi. A life of pain and suffering as a widow. There is bread, but there is no breadwinner in this culture. That's why the Bible is so big on caring for the widow. Because in this time and place, being a widow was almost like a death sentence. It, it, was, it was a life of poverty. And even as I say that, I know that there are people in our family who have brother, brothers and sisters in Christ who have felt the pain of losing a spouse. Who have, have, have they, they know how much harder life is as a, as a single parent. Who know what it feels like when your best friend is around, isn't around because of divorce or, or, or death. My prayer in this story is that, that you would feel seen. Seen by God and his people. Like Naomi in this moment is seen by God and his people. Psalm 68.5 says this. It describes God as a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. The story of Ruth is incredible proof of how God does that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We've got more chapters to preach. Naomi's daughter-in-laws, they refuse to leave. But, but Naomi's persistent, like mother-in-laws tend to be. Sorry. Verse 11. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. No longer in-laws. She treats them with tenderness, even as she refuses their commitment. My daughters, why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I, I am too old to have another husband. Even, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, no my daughters. Naomi's argument is this. Listen, I, I can't get married. I'm, I'm way beyond that age. And even if I could, let's, let's pretend that I could, which I can't, but let, if I could, do you think that that very night I'm going to have twin boys? 
I can't. But, but okay, let's pretend that I could. Are you going to wait around until they're old enough to be your husband? No, no, you won't. By that point, you won't even be able to have kids. I can't give you what you need. Naomi explains, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And here's where Naomi's faith meets Naomi's bitterness. She blessed them in the name of the one true God just a few sentences earlier, but now she's, she's explaining what's driving her love for them. She has, she's hopeless. She thinks they have no chance with her. The one true God who, who she can bless and say, it can bless you with husbands, has taken her husbands and her sons. In her word, the Lord, Lord's hand has turned against her. And she doesn't want to drag them down with her. She does not want her bitterness to become their bitterness. And here's our first glimpse into what's happening in Naomi's heart. I, I said earlier, this is a complicated story that answers these questions in long and complicated answers because these are short but very complicated questions that we have when we're suffering. We'll see that her bitterness doesn't actually transfer to her daughters, but we'll get that in the next profile, what I want to do is actually jump ahead to the next glimpse into what's happening in her heart. So verses 19 through 21, the two women, meaning Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? They entered their small town, and within seconds, like small towns do, word gets around. Everyone has heard about Naomi's return. There's a, there's a buzz in the air, and the question that everybody has after more than 10 years away, as they trace the lines of grief in Naomi's face, and they see the burden of suffering and pain that she carries with her, is, is this the same Naomi we said goodbye to more than a decade ago? What's happened? The question buzzes in the air for only a little bit of time before Naomi responds, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Pleasant wants to be called bitter, not because she's embracing bitterness, but because the description of pleasant no longer applies to her life. She left empty of food, but, but full of family, and now she returns to food in abundance, but empty of family. And in this moment, her theology gets into a cage match with her life. Her, her doctrine gets into the ring with her experience. What she believes is wrestling with what she is living. She wrestles with the Almighty like, like Job wrestled with the Almighty. You see, the, the, the way the text is laid out, it's very clear that Naomi understands the sovereignty of God. That like she declared every time she said her husband's name, God is king. She believes rightly that everything comes from the hand of the Lord, but that, that doesn't make it any easier when hard things come from that hand. Her life is bitter. She feels empty. It feels like God has attacked her, that he is the one who has brought misfortune into her life. The problem in this moment is not Naomi's theology. The problem is her application of her theology. The ways in which she's experiencing her grief, her pain, it's, it's starting to sour into bitterness. It's starting to take root in her heart and distorting a theology that should comfort into a theology that feels like it kills. Her understanding of sovereignty feels empty of grace. Her belief in God's power appears to be empty of compassion. 
God's justice feels a lot more like merciless wrath. Where is God when bitterness starts to take root in our hearts in the midst of suffering? When God as king is pitted against God as father. When God as king is contrasted with God as good. Where is God when bitterness starts to drive our hearts away from him? Listen, I don't know how you're tempted to bitterness this morning or in suffering. I know that in my moments of suffering and temptation to bitterness, that temptation is strongest when my hope is weakest. And my hope is weakest when I'm most alone. When I'm the only one talking to myself in my head and my heart. Where is God when bitterness takes root? God is present in and among the community of his people. The familia that he has created. This family of grace that's meant to communicate his love and his faithfulness. To to administer his divine antidote to bitterness. Why can I say that? Because the rest of the story of Ruth is all about how God's community rescues Naomi and how Naomi participates in that grace. When you are tempted to be most alone, even with the best of intentions like Naomi had with her daughters-in-law, God's grace is shining through his people, even in the most unexpected of people, like Ruth. Faithful love holds on despite disaster. And like I was saying, the faithful love of God holds on to us despite disaster. In some ways, The faithful love of God holds on to us in the way that it worked before disaster. Naomi's theology is wrestling with her experiences precisely because she has an understanding of who God was before everything went down. My job as your pastor is to prepare you for the hard times before the hard times. To prepare you for what will come in this broken world. What some of you are already in because of this broken world. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to have hard times. You will. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you won't struggle in those hard times. Because you will. The family of God is what keeps the family of God together. Why? Not because we're so important, not because we're so strong, not because we're really good at talking to each other, but because it is the Spirit of God that lives in each and every one of us. And He holds on to His people when everything feels like it's breaking. I've shared my story here before uh, of suffering. When I was wrestling with my cancer diagnosis a few years ago, I I started recording messages to my wife and and to my daughters. At that point, one daughter that was still in the womb, this this little girl that I I was worried that I wouldn't get to meet. Cancer was not a word that Jocelyn and I thought we would be talking about in our 20s. In those messages and in those moments, I, I felt like, like I was in one of those, uh, those carnival houses. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's a bunch of mirrors and lights and the like, floor keeps moving because they're trying to kill people. Now, in those moments, my feet are on solid ground, but it certainly feels anything but solid. Knowing who God is and what he is like means that in the middle of suffering, you're standing on solid ground even if it doesn't really feel like it. And it is the people of God that are there to remind you that you are standing on solid ground when it doesn't feel like it. Trusting in the king of the universe. Trusting in our good father. We grasp in the deepest way possible in the middle of suffering 
that his faithful love holds on to us despite disaster. Tempted to bitterness, Naomi's faith is, is shining through her pain even as she talks about the Almighty, the King. He, he, she's talking about all the stuff that he's bringing into her life, but she's still calling him King. And God is going to show up in this story in the most unexpected person, Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, the daughter-in-law of a grieving widow. This is our third and final portrait this morning. Ruth, a picture of love in the middle of grief. A portrait of loving kindness that overwhelms any expectation, overcomes any ox- obstacle to love. Naomi is showing love trying to send her away, and Ruth is showing love by holding on no matter what. And I told you we were doing this, so let's regroup. I'm going to go all the way back to the top of the story, and we'll go through looking at Ruth. The two sons, they married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. Women that not, were not from the people of Israel. Married to Israelite men. And for 10 years, they lived in Moab, but then both of those husbands died. And Naomi is left without two sons and without a husband. But Naomi is not the only widow in this situation. Ruth and Orpah have also lost their husbands. Ruth and Orpah are also grieving the men that they loved. The pain of this moment is magnified by the pain that they'd be living in for a decade, childless, trying to to adjust to life without a limelech. Not to mention even the pain that the story works so hard to point out. These women are outsiders. They're from Moab. They're enemies. All the way to the end of the chapter, Ruth's identity is split. At the very end, it still calls her the Moabite and the Naomi's daughter-in-law. The story is taking great pains to keep coming back over and over to this again. And so the question is, where is God when you're on the outside? Ruth is introduced first and foremost as a woman outside the people of God, without access to the promises of God. But now, through marriage, through exposure to the people of God, God is doing something. Where is God when you're on the outside? He is working to bring you in. To make you an insider as an avenue of His grace, a a conduit of His mercy, a a path for His gospel. Not because you're just some elite now that you're on the inside and you got all the special knowledge, but because you are also going to participate in the work of making outsiders become insiders. God is not absent or ignorant when you feel like you're on the outside. You are not outside of God's reach. You are not outside of God's vision. The story of the Bible is filled with story after story of the God who sees. One of the first people in the Bible to describe God actually names him as the God who sees, Hagar. Someone that was made outside by sin is brought in by God's grace because he sees her. And he sees Ruth. And he sees you. Where is God when you're on the outside? Out there with you, bringing you in. In just a few short verses, the picture of Ruth goes from outsider to faithful insider in the midst of grief. And eventually the story will become the insider. But I want you to remember Naomi's first speech. She's telling her daughters-in-law, go back. Get out of here. May the one true God bless you. The text says that after that speech, she kissed them goodbye. She's like, okay, we're done. They weep out loud. And then they said to her, we're going to go back with you to your people. The reason that we're talking about this third picture, and I'm talking, focusing on Ruth, is because of what happened between Naomi's first speech and Naomi's second speech. Something changed. 
After Naomi's first speech, we get the, the faithfulness of both of these daughters-in-law. It's, it's loud in a world where suffering seems to be loudest. They, they weep loudly and they commit strongly to their mother-in-law. But Naomi is persistent and pushes them back. She pushes them back to Moab in this second speech. And here is the result of the second speech. At this, they wept aloud again. All right? Same thing. But instead of both of them committing strongly, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And this is where the meaning of both of their names comes into play. Orpah is a name that means back of the neck, while Ruth is a name that means friend. Orpah turns back and Ruth clings. Orpah goes home and Ruth refuses to leave. And this is the difference between a a, a faithful love. To be clear, though, in this story, Orpah is not doing something that is faithless. Orpah is doing something that one pastor called the, the sensible thing. It makes sense. Listen, they're still young. They can have kids. Choosing to go with Naomi is a choice that virtually eliminates any other choice. They're choosing a hard life. And so Naomi is driving, giving them an out. And Orpah takes it at the insistence of her mother-in-law. And who's going to say no to their mother-in-law? But Ruth says no. Ruth does something different. And this is what is so huge about the way Ruth operates in this story. This is what's so overwhelming and so surprising by her love, so unbelievable. One scholar says, Orpah pursues the natural course. Ruth swims upstream. Look at the text. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law, Orpah, is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi, in her grief, goes from blessing these ladies, particularly Ruth, in the name of the one true God, to sending them back to false gods. There's something off about this. But Ruth is going to have none of it. Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Stop telling me to go. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, all caps Yahweh, deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. Do you understand what Ruth is saying in this moment? In an incredible piece of of poetry and faith, Ruth tells Naomi, listen, you and I, we're stuck together. We're bound together. I am devoted to you. I am committed to you. My love for you means that I will hold on to you no matter where you go, where you live, who your people are, who your God is. But it's not just to Naomi. I am all in with you, Naomi, but there's something different about your God in this moment. I'm not going back to my gods. Your God is going to be my God. I'm all in to the point where I'm dying next to you, and I'll be buried next to you. The kindness, so here's what's crazy. I don't know if you noticed this. I've been in this text, and I've been crying all week because of this text. I'm not going to apologize for that. The, the kindness that Naomi is blessing Ruth and Orpah with, that praying over them that the Lord would be kind to you and provide for you is all of a sudden the kindness that the Lord is providing for Naomi through Ruth. The kindness of security, of someone that's going to take care of her. It's the love and loyalty that Ruth shows in this moment that, that, that leaps off this page. Ruth is not playing games. And this is part of why I like Ruth so much. She's not quiet. She's not just going to take it. She's got uh, chutzpah. 
She's strong and she speaks to her, her mother-in-law with the boldness and confidence that only love brings. And on the way to Bethlehem, she shows that, that she's also somehow on the way to faith in the one true God. Your God will be my God. She uses the personal name of God, Yahweh, not just some generic name of, of the gods in general. Ruth may not be all the way in quite yet, but like so many of us, she's taken a step towards faith. And this story will show that eventually, like I said, she doesn't just become an insider. She becomes the insider through which God will make many insiders. Ruth is so strong about her pledge to Naomi, to her people, to her God, that when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. The grief that Ruth is experiencing alongside her mother-in-law as a grieving widow does not tempt Ruth towards bitterness. Instead, it ties her tightly to the God who holds on to his people in faithful love. And yet there's still work to be done. Last verse of the chapter. Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is just the beginning of the story they make it to Bethlehem, and Ruth, the Moabite, and Naomi's daughter-in-law walks in with Naomi as God's people are harvesting what God has provided. The story shows us that Naomi is far from empty. Her daughter-in-law is standing right next to her, and God is going to do something. You almost feel it. What will become of the family of faith? God's people have been visited by God's judgment and now by his provision, the family that left has returned, scarred, but not erased off of the face of the earth. How will God provide for them? He's provided physical bread in the house of bread. But someday, the house of bread will provide more than physical bread. Someday, Bethlehem will provide the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. Ultimately, God provides for his people, not just physically, although that's important and he cares, defender of the widow, but completely in Jesus, his son. What will become of Naomi, the bitter widow? How will God enter her bitterness and keep her faith alive? How will he provide for someone in this culture is now subjected to poverty, has very little hope of being able to provide for her, for herself, for her family. She's come home and healing is not just gonna come with time, but from the one who made time. Even when we don't read God's name in all of the different spaces in the story, we can actually trace his sovereign hand over and over again. This story shows that God's hand is not turned against Naomi. Soon enough, we'll see that his hand has been turned towards her in grace and provision that God provided for her way before she stepped foot back in Bethlehem that he provided for her when Ruth said, I do. What will become of Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law? How will this outsider take care of her mother-in-law? What will be her security in this place of her enemies? Will she be safe? Something tells me that Ruth is not someone that's going to back down from a fight. But how is this supposed to work? How are these people going to accept her? Well, God's hand has been tracing a path where Ruth is going to be included. But how that's going to happen is the rest of the story. But as we end, I want to turn this question back on you. What has become of you because of Jesus? I changed the uh, tense of these words, not what will become of you, but what has become of you, because we live on this side of the cross. 
We live on this side of, a, of salvation, of a Savior, on this side of the bread of life coming to earth, the Savior born in Bethlehem, the sovereign King that enters the bitterness of life to make His saving grace sweet to us. What has become of you because of Jesus? How has Jesus entered your grief and your pain and your bitterness and shown you His faithful love? Do you believe that His love is actually faithful? In the middle of suffering, do you believe that faithful love holds on despite disaster? The cross of Jesus is actually the ultimate example of this because it's faithful love that actually takes on disaster, takes on death in order to bring life, to bring healing, restoration, repair, to make everything new. Familia, when I talk about this, I know that suffering is real and it really hurts that it cuts really deep. But for those of us who trust in Jesus, we have to see with eyes of faith what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4.17, that our, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Faithful love holds on despite disaster because love believes that God is the one holding on to us, that by his spirit we hold on to him, that he is making all things new that he makes beauty out of brokenness, that the gospel is a message of restoration. This morning, if you're here and you're listening to all this hope talk and you're not a Christian, my prayer is that all of this actually makes you hungry and thirsty for that hope, for hope found within the people of God, like, like Ruth found hope within the people of God, like, like Naomi found hope within the people of God. But if you're a Christian, my prayer is that you would remember that. I'm not trying to teach you anything new. I'm trying to get you to remember what God has done for you. Remember what the gospel has done for you. That is what holds on to you in the midst of brokenness and suffering. That is faithful love played out over and over again in the message of the gospel that, that you are worth being, that, enduring torture, being nailed to a cross for. That you are worth coming to earth and experiencing Life, God, Jesus took on, the, the Son of God took on human flesh. That wasn't a walk in the park. Like, we know life is hard, but we didn't have a choice. We were just born. God had a choice. He entered into life. We messed everything up because we wanted to be like God. Adam and Eve, they saw that the fruit was good to eat, that it would make them like God, and their eyes were opened. We tried to become like God, and it didn't work. We couldn't bear the weight. In order to fix it, God became like us. To redeem what we broke. And when everything else around you is breaking, my prayer is that you would realize, remember the gospel that demonstrates his faithful love is holding on to you. Even when you can't see what's going on. Even when things feel foggy and broken. That you would trust his promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we pray out of our brokenness and out of hope this morning. Trusting that you are a God who fixes the broken, who restores what was lost, who takes care of his people. Lord, even when suffering hits and life gets hard and, 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 and we can't imagine how any of this makes sense. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us 
that you are the one who makes sense. That even when everything feels broken, that even when we ask why, that there might not be answers as to why, but we can know that you are good. And then in the gospel, you have proven your goodness to us, your faithfulness to us, that you loved us so much that you died for us, that you came back to life for us. Help us to trust you, even when it's the hardest thing we do. We trust you to work by your spirit in our hearts this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray.